Go ahead and take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, I personally enjoy sports, and I'm not condoning every, most things with sports, uh, especially today with the materialism that's tied with it and so on. But there is something that uh, is fun about being a part of it, but also following teams. Now, personally, um, I don't follow minor league teams. Um, I don't know how the farm teams are doing for the Milwaukee Brewers or the Chicago Cubs or the Atlanta Braves or, whatever, or Kansas City Royals. I have no idea. Um, but I do uh, pay attention to major league sports, okay? And uh, college would be close to that category. Uh, in fact, coming up in a couple weeks is um, a game called the Super Bowl. In case you don't know what that is, that's where the two top teams in the NFL, which is the National Football League, which is the professional league of football, uh, is where they gather together. Uh, just the two teams will play. They don't gather. There's nothing nice about it. Uh, they're... They're there to kill each other, basically. Uh, and um, this year, it's Kansas City, again, versus Philadelphia. Now, I, the only reason I care all about this is because my in-laws are big-time Chiefs fans, and uh, they're all in with the Kansas City Chiefs. In fact, when they showed up last night and at our home uh, to come for Nathan's three-year-old birthday party, which is today, little Nathan is three now. Um, but uh, anyway, they came, and what were they wearing? Kansas City Chiefs sweatshirts. You know, you just got to have on the gear when you're when that's your team. And so, uh, anyway, they uh, came like that. And uh, and Sunday night, um, I caught on the radio the last uh, couple minutes of the game when they kicked the field goal. A few seconds left, my boys were cheering. They're all my, my in-laws have completely. It's just because the Royals and the Cub or the, the Royals and the Chiefs got good at the same time. Uh, really good, and so now my kids thinks that Kansas City is the greatest place. You know, when it comes to sports, I'm thinking, where'd that come from? <laughs> you know, uh, Chicago's not too good. That's that's the problem. Is I've kind of been rooting Chicago, which has been a little rough. But uh, anyway, all I can say is this: when the Chiefs players, I'll focus on them since they were the team that we were fo- were rooting for. When the Chiefs players uh, played that game, um, did they all just come off of the street and just play a game? No. To get to the big leagues, there's, a, there's quite a process, isn't there? Training that goes on. Now, the thing is, I heard something interesting. I think it was late last night, or no, it was yesterday sometime. I, I heard uh, a guy from Kansas City, a sports guy, calling a Chicago station saying that Kansas City this year, actually they had unloaded some of their top talent, except for their quarterback, and all the teams in the AFC were aiming to knock them out. You know, They were getting big, you know, big name guys, paying the big salaries for them to come on the team. And they were trying to get a team that would beat the Chiefs. And they thought, well, the Chiefs were going to kind of fade off the scene because you know, they have seven rookies on their starting squad, right? So you think they're not going to make it. Well, that's not true. The Chiefs pulled out. They have a very strong quarterback. But what I thought was interesting was, is even when you think of rookies, though, are rookies just literally you just never played before? They just, no, there's a whole process that these guys go through. You know, through uh, college, many of them, uh, lots, especially with football. Uh, but they, they have a lot of development that's happened since a lot of them, since they were in Pee Wee League, all the way on up to get to the major leagues. Other sports have different training leagues. Um, in baseball, you have single A, double A, triple A. I think there's even something before that. Triple uh, A would be the um, closest to getting into major leagues. Sometimes guys will skip from double A to the major leagues, but most of the time they don't. 
Uh, NBA has something I think called the D League. I don't even really know what they do. Of course, in most sports, they have college before that. And I say all this to say, everybody, though, is aiming for what? To get on, in the big leagues. When you think about it, though, even though there's 30 teams in, I think, the NBA or baseball, I don't know how many the NBA has, I think football's 30, 32, something like that, in the NFL. You know, it seems like a lot of guys, even when, when you think of football, was it 50-something on a team? That's not something like that total they had, plus practice squad. But even with that, compared to the amount of guys that grew up playing sports, it's not that many. Think of the NBA. Well, you have a starting team of five. To be a starter in an NBA team, think about how many boys dream about being on the NBA. Some of you probably did, right? You know, especially if you were a little taller or something. I don't know. Maybe you did. Not, you probably grew up in homes where you knew that wasn't a possibility. But, but anyway, but there's still something about that. There's still something about being a part of something big and exciting. You know, the Bible, though, compares the Christian life to sports, too. We've talked about this before. Messages like Philippians 1.27 about striving together. That has a sports analogy there. Running the race. Uh, it's used throughout Scripture. What I want us to look at here is, is this. You, being in this school, a vision is constantly put in front of you. A vision about God using your life. A vision about you being part of something really big, really big. You know what? We believe you're going to be a part of something really big. We believe all of you are. We believe that God is today, and he's going to work in a great and mighty way. We, and, and, and it's not minimizing. I'm not saying the big leagues are ahead. In some senses, any ministry that we're involved in is significant. This, I'm not, this is an imperfect analogy. But what I'm trying to get you, the point is this. You're dreaming about the future. You, many, many of you have a vision. You want God to use your life, and you, you see it through missions or maybe another aspect of a venue of service for God. Maybe you're still wondering what God has, but you know he's going to use your life you, as he's working in you. And, and so you're beginning to get a vision, and you want to get out there and do it, which is good. Wonderful. Okay? But I think it's very important to look at this example of Paul in 1 Thessalonians, chapters 1 and 2. We'll kind of look over these here this morning. I think you're going to find very interesting as he walked into a city uh, that God did a mighty work in, yet he faced some incredible opposition and challenges. And ultimately, uh, he sends this letter back to, to them. And chapter 2, as we're going to spend most of our time on, is a defense of his ministry. He was attacked so viciously. And so he gives a defense of who he is. And the question is, is uh, uh, Paul is in this thing big time. Are you right now recognizing the fact that you're preparing for the big leagues? In other words, you're, look, you're not always going to have the wonderful context of a place like this. Many of you are going to be out on your own. Not without God, of course. But you're going to be doing ministry where you're going to be the buck stop. The decisions could go with you, the direction of the church you're pastoring, or ladies, the supporting of your husband if God allows you to be married to minister, or maybe your uh, teacher in a place, or so on. The direction of your life and what you do and, and all the people you influence, it's all going to be really on your shoulders. You're not going to have the support system of a school that's around you. And I think it's important for us to then grab a hold of what was it that made Paul who he was, and what is it going to take for you right now to be able to know that you are preparing you are preparing for God to use your life and in a way that can be lasting. Look, Paul was a man who could write a letter back and say, you know how I lived, you know who I was, and also God is witness. Can that be said of you? Even right now in school, you're preparing for what you're going to be one day. 
and you're preparing for the generations that you're going to affect one day. And it's, it's exciting. I mean, to think of 20 years, 30 years from now, I trust that I'll still be going strong uh, and, uh, and, and serving the Lord. And I'd love to be collaborating with many of you and whatever God calls us to, to, to do. There's so much excitement that's ahead, but uh, there's a lot of people that don't actually make it to the Hebrews 11 or 12 grandstand moment where, they're, where you have that cloud of witnesses that's watching you run the race because you're not really running the race well. So what I'd like to see here is four different points regarding, I'm going to use this again, this picture of the big leagues, okay? And the first thing I'd like us to see is the glory of the big leagues. What's so glorious about what God's called us to? Well, this is what Paul's talking about in First. 5 of chapter 1, he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. You know what? You know what's glorious about serving God and being part of his big cause? Is that you get to declare a powerful message. You say, well, yeah, yeah, I, I know that. No, it's glorious. It's the message of the gospel that completely changes lives. That's what your life should be all about. You notice what Paul says. He says, for our gospel. It was personal. It was all-consuming. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about we're ambassadors for Christ. And his, Paul's whole life was characterized by the fact that he was passionate to declare the gospel. And he loved it. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in also in power and in the Holy Ghost. Aren't you glad that the gospel that you declare, the word of God that you declare, is powerful? See, it's powerful, especially when it's ignited by the Holy Spirit. And so you have an opportunity now, and you're training for this, you're getting experience now, for when God calls you to whatever he calls you to, to be a part of declaring the gospel, understanding what it means to have the Holy Spirit's power in your life, where you can see God break through in a community and change lives. He says, our gospel came not unto you, not in word only, but also in power. Now, I love the verse in Jeremiah where it talks about his word is like a fire, like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. God can take the hardest rock and break it in pieces by the power of his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 was the promise that was given that uh, when they would uh, be, they were commissioned to spread the gospel. And, it says, uh, and he says, um, uh, all power, oh, that's, that's actually uh, Matthew 28. Um, I'm drawing a blank here in Acts 1.8 all of a sudden. Uh, Micah? Ye shall receive power. That's embarrassing. I was getting Matthew 28 stuck in my head there. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So Paul recognized what he had. He said, our gospel came down to you, not just in word, and there's, he's not minimizing the word, but the word of God energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and in much assurance, did you know that as you walk with God, and as you draw near to God, and as you have a close relationship with God, what does God do when it comes to declaring the gospel? He gives you confidence in the message. He says, we declare to you in much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. This idea of assurance is actually the same word is also found in Hebrews 10, verse 22, speaking of the, the importance of us drawing near with full assurance of faith. When we're walking with God and we're in that close communion with Him, there will be a confidence that He brings in our life and we can have a, a confidence that He's going to use us. You notice what He says here, Paul says in verse 5, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. 
Let me encourage you right now while you're in school, get all in on declaring the gospel. Don't say, well, I'll get busy about it when I get out. I'll just do the requirements here at school. No. For lack of a better term, practice it as much as you can. Use it right now. Get out in the community. Be talking to people about Jesus. You need the word of God. You need the Spirit's power and confidence in the message. And for you to be able to be used powerfully on the mission field, in the community, here in the U.S., to see God break it open, you need to right now be a gospeler. And that's not, by the way, just because you're a BCM doesn't mean that's automatic. I can guarantee there's some of you right now that are scared to death. It's okay to be scared to death when it comes to just your recognition that you need for God. That's okay. But when you're scared to death in fear, you don't do it. That's a killer. And I'm amazed at how many adults are bound, bound, and will not give the gospel regularly. Pastors that love to be in their study and don't get out at all to witness to the community. That's, that's wrong. Pastors should be the ones leading out with boldness in the gospel. And so you, you fellows need to have a love for studying, love for the Word of God. You need to spend hours in, in, with God in prayer and also in the Word. That's, that's biblical. But you should be soul owners. And it starts now. Paul loved it. Paul was a student of the Word, man. <laughs> Look at how much God allowed him to write. And yet Paul was constantly engaged in gospel work. And you notice here the results of the powerful message here when you think of the glory of what we're a part of. It talks about how they became followers of us and of the Lord. And having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. And then he talked about how they showed what men are venturing in, that, um, that Paul and Silas had unto them, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and then their expectation for God's return, or Christ's return there is seen in verse 10. So what happened? What was the result of this message? Well, God started to work. People started to imitate their leaders. They started to follow. It's the idea of imitating, following after us and of the Lord. They imitated Paul. They imitated God, Christ, as they were following his life. They paid the price, by the way. Look at that. They received the word in much affliction. Do you know what's really, really amazing? Is when you see people that God allowed you to lead to, to himself, be willing to pay a price for what they just received. That's really impacting. Paul's experiencing this all the time. All the time. And, and just in Thessalonica, I mean, the persecution. He got driven out of town there. It was intense. And the Christians that were identifying with the Lord and clearly becoming followers of the Lord paid a great price. But you notice how they received the word in much affliction. But what? Is that where it ends? No. With joy of the Holy Ghost. They paid the price for following the Lord, but man, they were joyful in it. That's a, I'll tell you what, there's no greater work to be a part of than that. See, lives so transformed, they're willing to pay whatever price because Jesus is that important to them. That's what God's going to be calling you to and is calling you to right now to be a part of seeing God use your life that way. Everybody, by the way, knew about what God was doing there. Did Paul have to go around on, on, on his Thessalonica tour? All right, everybody, here's what's going on in Thessalonica. Look at the church of the Thessalonians. I want to tell you what God's doing. Say a word. He said, I didn't have to say anything. Everybody knew what God was doing. Okay, what allowed Paul to be able to have this kind of impact, though, in ministry? I mean, to have people wholly following God, turning from dead idols to serve the living and true God. By the way, that should give you hope. 
These people were idolatrous. They were immoral. Everything pretty much that we find right now in the USA, these people were. And maybe even worse in some cases, without any, any um, awareness of, of God at all. And yet, a community was radically shaken by the power of the gospel. Then you see in verse 10, these people were so walking with God, man, they, they were ready for his return. They were living in reality of that. Now, can I challenge you with this? Get excited about what God can do now. You know what that means, though? I'm going to talk, talk about this in a few moments as well, but you need to be committed to the process in people's lives. Don't give up when people struggle. Don't quit when they struggle. Learn to get a hold of God in prayer. Learn to be all in to see God remarkably change lives. Now, if you develop patterns right now of not just glorying in the ministry that God's called you to, when you get to the, to the, uh, the big stage, if you want to use that term, it's not, again, not a perfect term, but when you get to the opportunity where you're the pastor, or even you're an assistant pastor, your ministry role is now, whoa, if you're not right now preparing and going through all, just seeing ministry for the glory of what it is, you're not, it's not going to just, a switch isn't just going to flip on. God can mercifully work in your life, don't get me wrong, but you're, you're going to have to develop habits of life and, and mindsets and things that are going to have been very hurtful. But being a part of the cause of Christ is glorious. Look, when they build minor league stadiums, do they build minor league stadiums for like, you know, 50, 60,000 people? Typically what? You know, three, five, seven thousand. But when they build that Major League Baseball stadium, now it's a little smaller because they can't build as much. But, uh, you know, 40, 45,000 people. They used to build them for 50 something. Football stadiums, what? 70,000? 80,000? Man, it's exciting. But the guys that aren't willing to go through the process in the minor leagues don't make it to that point. And we're going to look at some of the process points here that I'm, I'm heading for, that I believe God's put on my heart, that's right here in this passage. You can dream all you want. You can have these big ideas about your future, but if you right now are not involved fully in the glory of what God can do now, you will not see what you think you're going to see. It just won't happen. God, again, God's merciful, but don't think things are just going to switch, flip. So, it's glorious. Paul was all in. But let's look at here, secondly, the opponents in the big leagues. Now, something just happened. I just came across yesterday. It was kind of humorous. All right. Did you know that the mayor of Cincinnati, the Bengals, decided to take on the Chiefs last week? I didn't know this. And he put out this proclamation, basically ripping the Chiefs. He called Arrowhead Stadium. If you know this, the Bengals quarterback's name is Joe Burrow. He called it Burrowhead. He said some other kind of derogatory things about the Chiefs, you know, and he says, uh, you know, he just he made some kind of uncouth statement about the quarterback and stuff. Well, guess what happened? That fired up the Chiefs. And when they won the game, I, I didn't say I didn't know all this till, till yesterday. When they won the game, one of their star players got up. And when they were getting the trophy, he just directly addressed the Cincinnati mayor and called them out and, and clearly showed that that guy had motivated them by his opposition of them. It was interesting because uh, now that mayor is absolutely in hot water in Cincinnati. He's, he had to apologize, and now the fans are furious for firing up the Chiefs, whatever. Okay, when you get on a, a sports field, 
you don't play just to play, and you have no, there always is an opponent, isn't there? Right? Does the work of God have opposition? Yes, it does. Okay. I'm noticing this room's pretty warm. Some, some, some of you look like you're a little tired today. So try to, try to stay awake. I just want to encourage you. By the way, when I sat in chapel, uh, one thing I really asked the Lord to help me do was never to fade out, because if I did, there was something God had for me I was going to miss. So I know it's a little warm in here, actually a little too warm. I don't, my office is 52 degrees right now. So they just found out that the, uh, the, out, the damper to the outside was wide open last night. So the church offices were getting flooded with that air. And uh, couldn't, the furnace couldn't keep up. So now it's warm, warm, warming up, I believe, while I'm in here, which is nice. But uh, anyway, so here, here's what I'm trying to say. Look, there is a direct opposition to the work of God. And what you're doing right now in how you approach life challenges and how you respond is preparing you for how you're going to face it when it gets tough. I'm talking about really tough. I'm finding out more and more the more I have opportunities in, in this church with, with just the, the, uh, the role I have and where I'm serving. There's times you find yourself spending hours with people, difficult conversations, things that are, are sometimes not in opposition, but they're just hard to navigate, trying to help people through things. It can be interesting. And uh, it, it's one of those things that if you, if you are not walking with the Lord and, and on the right path and haven't learned to to stay at the stuff. That's why pastors only last two to five years at churches. I'm not saying God can never call a man off to another, another, another place after a shorter time. I'm not saying that, but that's the average. Why? Well, because of this. Look at verse chapter 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. He had just been in Philippi. Anybody know what happened to Philippi? They suffered there physically, right? They beat him up. And they were, they were gathered there in the, in the village, open in the village square, and they were going after him, and they were mocking, and they were saying things, and they were trying to get to their mind, and they throw him in prison. And Paul and Silas have that great revival moment when they're singing instead of moaning, and then God opens up the prison, right? It's a great story, but do you think they were worn out? you think they had kind of had it with the opposition thing? I mean, it kind of got, if you faced opposition as much as these guys did, Think about the, the amount of pushback, not just from people, but just life circumstances. How much pushback does it take for you to want to quit? I hate to say it, but for most of you, not very much. And it's, I say this because I'm, even though I'm technically a generation older than you, I'm on the low end of the, um, the millennial, but, or the old end, excuse me, the older end of the millennial. I'm like, like right at the top of the uh, generation X, I guess, and millennial. But the point is this, that I know what it is. We don't have a lot of fiber inside of us to keep going. Things get rough. Things get tough. What do we want to do? <sighs> I don't know. It's not worth it. Just facing too much. You know, look, even what was a day or two ago, it was weird. All of a sudden, out of the blue, I had, I had some tough things I had to work through. Some people here in our church that I was having just to navigate. Didn't know how to handle fully. And it was all positive. God, he worked it out. But just, you know, you're kind of taking it all in. And then all of a sudden, uh, then... Um, Yesterday, just some doubts from the enemy, I guess, or my own flesh, whatever, just started coming in and uh, discouraging thoughts. And the Lord helped me yesterday. I think it was after afternoon. I said, whoa, woo, stop. Okay. 
Because it's discouraging thoughts, like, you know, well, whatever, there's a variety of them. And immediately God said, this is a key moment for you, buddy. Start looking to me. And my wife and I got on her knees last night and we had a good time of prayer. I'm encouraged this morning. Why? Because God's really is on the, on the throne no matter what things are thrown at you. Look, one of my children, my younger ones, didn't make it to the proper place last night and everything went right down the stairs. Okay? So guess what we were doing for an hour? Cleaning it up. That's not fun. That's just, you know, and then you got all these other things and it's like, oh, that? Oh. You know what? That's a small thing, okay? But it still is hard at that moment. The fact is, it doesn't take us much to get discouraged and down. He was beaten and made fun of. Think about Nehemiah when the opponents came and they said, ah, look at that little wall you got there. You know, that's not going to last. And they were trying to get him off target. And Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, when the religious rulers berated them and beat them up, to get them to stop. Let me ask you this. As Paul is going from Philippi, do you think he deserved a long vacation and a break? He could have made an excuse for that, right? He didn't do it. He went right into Thessalonica. Now, by the way, is there anything wrong with breaks and vacation? No. Pastor's having one right now, by the way. First one in the year. So I'm glad for him. And he's not gone long, just through Saturday. But the Lord opened the door. It's really a neat story how God made it happen for him, which I'm thrilled. It's important to do that. But when you live your life looking just to, okay, and you just want to, you want to just pull away from that, that's actually when you're missing probably what God's about ready to do. Sometimes in the, in the, when the pressure gets really intense, it's not the time to back out and quit. It's the time to head, just look to Jesus and say, God, I want you to do whatever you need to do in my life because I know you're doing something. I don't see it, but I'm trusting you. Don't quit. That's what he, he didn't do. In fact, some of the commentaries I read said it's remarkable how he just went right there. There was no quit. No break in here. He's right into it, right in the teeth of it. And he knew it was going to be tough. And so what, what happened is, is you find him not going for a break or quitting. He's getting right into the big league right here in this, in this, in this, um, in this town. And look what it says at the end. He says, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Not only does Satan, when he opposes us, want us to try to get off course and to maybe just quit it and to just throw in the towel because it's a little bit harder than, than we like. It's not comfortable. But another thing he'd love for us to do is to get off message. He says, look, even in the midst of the opposition, even in the midst of having just come from a place where we were really, even though they saw God deliver them, it was still, it would shake you up what they had faced. He says, we spake the gospel of God with much contention. That would be opposition. That would be agony. It was not easy. And so what he's saying here is when the going is tough to do it right, say, don't get off what is the key to see the move of God go forward. In other words, when things are difficult, you're going to be tempted, especially if you start facing opposition in your church. Ladies, you're going to be tempted to maybe give your husband advice and say, wow, maybe we're being a little too here or whatever. And, uh, and when God's saying, no, you're facing opposition, but as you seek my face, continue to be bold with the truth. He did not pull back with his message. He spoke the gospel of God to them in the midst of what? Much contention. Your dedication right now to training, to going all in, even when it's the toughest and you feel like just running from it and to, to, to just to say, I can't handle all this. Right now, you're making decisions that are going to, to dictate how you're going to handle the moments in the big leagues when things get really tough. What do you do when the going gets tough, even in a class? Or maybe somebody's trying to help you spiritually and you don't like it. 
How do you respond? It's going to make a difference in how you're going to be able to handle the pressures that happen. I, I, I always thought college was tough. <laughs> I didn't mind you know, the, the rules and all that. I didn't struggle with that. But it was more of just, just the intensity of it and so on. And, and there were times you're like, you know what? I'm glad I stayed the course and I kept looking to, to the Lord because I think of all the still the, um, the habits of life that I still need to grow in and so on. And I'm thinking, wow, if I had not stayed the course, I would be a much different person today. Then there's also the temptations, not only opposition, but there's temptations of the big leagues. Did you know that a desire for success can be dangerous when our motives aren't pure and God-given? Look, I want to hear great things through your life. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. But there's a lot of impure motives that can come in that can actually mess you up big time and can throw you off big time and can be an open season for sin big time. Look, when I was little... I would always dream about being the guy that was there for the Atlanta Braves. And it's two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning in the World Series. I'm up to bat, you know, and uh, there's two strikes on me. The bases are loaded. We're down by three runs. And who hits the grand slam? Yours truly. Okay. Or when I, you know, that, that, that was more in the mind, you know, I was dreaming. But then I would get my basketball Back when I was a Bulls fan in the 90s, guess who was the big player then? Michael Jordan. You know who that is? Okay. Anyway, so Michael Jordan, back when I was a kid, I mean, he was the big thing, right? And so I would go out there to the Hooper house in Germantown, and I'd be out there dribbling. I'd be, I'd be like, five, four, three. They're down by one. It's two. He shoots. Of course, I missed 90% of them, but it was great anyway. But when it went in, or you know, all of a sudden, I'd miss it. Like, no, no, there's still three seconds, too. You know, all that, okay? We dream about the moment. Okay? And it's okay to dream about God using your life, but there's temptations that come with that. That's why you're here at BCM to help you with this. Look what he said. He was able to riot defense of his life. He says, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Look, he gives several things that did not describe who he was, but he had to address it. First of all, he did not have deceit. What is that? Well, that's really the idea of error being your source. I believe it's speaking of, he says, look, I did not give you error. I gave you truth. How do you know that you're giving truth? you got to be a student of the word. Don't shortcut your training. Don't go to the lowest level. Ladies, too, by the way, this is not just for guys who preach the gospel. You're going to be exhorting your children. You're going to be exhorting other ladies. You're going to have a ministry. You're going to be able to get involved in lives. And it's got to be inside of you that everything that you speak, you know you are speaking truth and you have confidence in it. He says, I, don't, I didn't give anything of deceit. But here's another one. Nor of uncleanness. I think there's two angles to this as I was studying it out. One would be moral purity. It's a very wicked culture. In fact, all the pagan worship had immorality all over it. It's tied to it. Let me just say, this is not just for young men. This is for both genders because of just the pervasiveness of temptation today. But if you're not having victory in purity, 
in your thoughts, in your actions, I trust, and then your, what you're allowing in that affects your thoughts and your actions. If you're not having victory in this area now, you're not going to be entrusted with the, the big vision that God's calling you to. It's binding. And it's destructive. Now, this doesn't mean if your heart's open and so on and you've struggled with it, it doesn't mean you're not going to be used by God. That's not my point at all. No, my point is God is going to use your life if you're accountable, if you're honest, if you'll do whatever it takes to be right with God. I don't care what inconveniences you have to have. Some of you guys just need to shut your phone down and say, I don't have to have that. I'm not saying no phone at all. I'm saying any, you know, I don't trust myself, so guess what, guys? I have no way to be on the, I have no way to browse. No way. It's cut off, and we have gone through my phone backwards and forwards, and it, it's tight. And why? Because I don't trust myself. I don't care that I'm a pastor than 40 years old. I don't, I don't trust myself. This is what's grieving me, though. I'm grieved by what churches, pastors are allowing today on their platforms and the music they condone, the movies that they promote. In fact, one pastor just recently, some of you may have heard this in my brother's class, I'm not sure, but he said uh, to a group in his church, to, to his church, he said, some of you have been ruined by traditions of churches, especially the tradition of saying the movie theater is not good. And uh, he said, I'm so sorry for you. Well, we're here to try to help, help to heal you. I'm thinking, the movie theater is pretty much completely it's nothing but impurity or violence or whatever. I mean, but is, is, I mean, I think of Johnny Rice in the 30s or 40s, whatever it was, preaching passionately against the movie theater. That's stuff that you guys have watched at home, like Sergeant York, all that, you know, the good stuff, Gone with the Wind. I'm not saying they're good, by the way. I'm not, I've never seen Gone with the Wind. I saw a little bit of Sergeant York. That's whatever. Um, but here's, here's, here's the point. The stuff that we think is the oldies and goodies Back in the 30s when they had a little more discernment, man, they were preaching strong against it. We've gotten very impure, guys and gals. Look, we have women that are dressed on our platform in a provocative way, and we're worshiping God. We have music that's sensual. We are condoning and we're encouraging people to go and to imbibe in Hollywood. Something's wrong with us. You say, well, that's never going to be me. Huh. Trust me, many guys are going that direction, and gals too. Why? They're not pure. I'm not saying they're in the deep pornography necessarily, but they're not pure. If you're pure before God and God is everything to you, you're going to want to stay as far away as you can from something that's going to blemish the purity of your God. You know what? We're so desensitized to sin, as Dr. Jim said back in September. I think it would be very sobering to have folks that lived uh, two, three hundred years ago to show up in our churches and our culture today. And uh, just give us their sense. They had their battles, too. But I'm sure they'd be pretty horrified, right? I'll never forget we were in, in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh, we were, uh, they were acting, and they all stay in character. And this guy was Thomas Jefferson doing a speech. And he said, ooh, he's, he's looking at the crowd. He says, you know, our soldiers are really struggling with, with you know, this need for... Um, uh, your, um, for, for clothing and all that. And he looked out and he said, I wonder how this crowd is faring today. He goes, ooh. This is what he said. Seems as if you all are in your undergarments. And he didn't say anything like super inappropriate, but just like, 
ooh, this is very different than back then. That was the 90s. All I can say is we're too used to stuff that does not make our Savior happy. I know we talk about this a lot, but it's a killer. It'll take it right out of you. Your conviction, guys, will be gone if you can't get the inner, inner man helped. And you say, well, I feel like an idiot. I have it. Most of us do. So guess what? Just get open and get help. Get accountable. And if you are, praise God. If you're still struggling, there's victory in Jesus. You don't have to be bound by it. And I'm not condemning anybody. I understand. I understand the road. But we've got to have it. Look, could you write a testimony back to BCM and say, you know how I was there? No uncleanness. And not just me, but God is my witness. Not just you saw it, I'm sorry, but God is my witness. But it's also pure motives. Why do you do what you do? What are your motives for your friendships here, even at school, and your conversations, the stuff that you do? Is it pure? Is it righteous and holy? I mean, really? Can you say that your spirit yesterday and the things you said to your fellow classmates were really with the right motives and pure before God? Something to think about. I'm not talking about just immoral talk. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying your motives. And then he says, nor in guile. Guile's the idea of baiting a hook. He didn't give a message that was in, in, in an atmosphere of craft and deception. You know, this is the danger of like sh- uh, sugarcoating what God says, especially when we want results. We kind of do it a certain way. You know what? If you are a young man who is an open book in a good way, transparent, I'm talking about not open book as in whatever comes, you know, hey, I'm open to it. But you are with God, you're open. With man, you're open and transparent. You're not going to be tempted to get involved with this idea of guile or baiting a hook. Why? Because you are letting God, thus saith the Lord, change you. And you recognize that's the power, his power, that's going to be changing other lives. But when you're not being changed and you're living a lie, the only thing you're going to be able to get others to change with is a lie. It's just true. Because if the word of God is not strong enough to change your life, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be sufficient through the power of the Spirit to change their life. And then he says this. We were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. His ministry of the gospel he saw was a stewardship. It was a trust. And he says, I cannot then, if I've been given the stewardship, it cannot be about me pleasing men, but it must be about pleasing God. Insecurity is a killer in ministry, gals and guys. It's a killer. Pleasing men will characterize those who can't live without the commendation of men. There are times when man's commendation is not real present. But if you're walking with Jesus and you're humble and you're correctable, and you're willing to do whatever God wants, but you know you're believing God, you're doing what you're supposed to do, and man's not liking it, the only thing that should matter to you is the smile of Jesus upon your life. Is that all that matters to you, though? Even in this pure culture, in this group, I'm not talking about walking around being different, being your own person, being independent. No, I'm talking about if you're genuinely walking with Jesus, are you okay if others who maybe aren't really transparent, open, walking with God? I want to really challenge some of you upper-class guys especially. Be real. Be open. You don't need to put on anything you're not. Don't try to please men. Please God. Freshmen, of course, too. This is all ages. But especially you guys who are closer and closer to whatever ministry God calls you to. You notice here it says flattering words. We didn't use those either. We weren't descending to flattering speech in order to make the gospel more acceptable. And we weren't flattering the men's self-complacency and blinding them to, to their need for the, a radical working of God in their life. 
It's the idea of this, guys and gals, saying whatever needs to be said according to God's word, even if it means loss. Are you willing to pay that kind of price? Are you? Do you love Jesus that much that even if half your church walked out because you were genuinely walking with God, you were humble, but you were, you were following God's plan and you, again, you were not you know, proud and un- uncorrectable. You just know that what you're speaking was truth. Are you willing to pay, pay the price? Or do you feel like you have to keep people so you're going to say things that aren't true? Cloak of covetousness, using your abilities and positions for gain. You know, one thing that our generation, your generation, struggles with is willingness to do whatever it takes for the cause of Christ to go forward. A willingness to sacrifice, go without even at times what you feel is remuneration like you need, just simply to see the work of God go forward. Those who I've seen who have been willing to sacrifice and give their all, I've always seen God provide for them. The people that are always holding on to, they deserve this, they should have this, they won't take this responsibility on because it's not enough pay. They're just going to always be like that. Honestly, it bugs me. Let's <laughs> be honest with you. Uh, you say, well, you're a paid staff member. Yeah, I am. There's a lot of things I did when I was younger that I learned to just give myself to that were volunteer. I'm glad for every little sacrifice that I made when I was younger. There's decisions I've made even in, in my wife and I in our lives these last few years that have been, you could say, financially sacrificial uh, for a bigger cause to go forward, and I don't regret one of them. My God shall supply all your need. Ministry is not about making money. And if you right now are in a position where you think, well, I deserve this, then God help you. We don't deserve anything. God will take care of us. I know of a young man years ago who had an opportunity. He was paid pretty well as an assistant pastor, and he had an opportunity to make a salary more than Pastor Van Gelderen's salary down at the church in um, Illinois. Guess what? He didn't take it. It wasn't enough pay. Wow. Isn't that sad? But it's not just about pay. It's position. You know, are you willing to do whatever role, even if you have a vision for something big, are you willing to do whatever role you're called to do where you're at? In other words, are you passionate about whatever God's allowing me to do right now? I'm all in. I had somebody just a year ago or so, uh, they have a bigger vision for what God's going to do with their life, but they're um, serving as an assistant role somewhere. And it was a wonderful conversation we had talking about the current ministry role this person was in and going all in there. Somebody said to me, well, if I go all in where I'm at, I might get stuck there. I say, uh-uh. You go all in where you're at, you're the kind of person that God's going to actually be able to launch into something bigger that he can trust. The guys that are always looking for greener grass and saying, it's going to be better over here. I'm just going to put my time in here. I want the big leagues over here. Forget it. You're not trustworthy. God can't trust a guy like that. But the guy that says, you know what? Right now, this is, I'm in the will of God. This is where he wants me. I'm going to keep my dream alive because I know But my dream is going to be formed by who I am right now. Who you are right now at school is forming your dream. It's okay to dream. I'm all about it. I'm not telling you to not dream about God using you. Dream, but be willing to go through whatever process that God wants for your life because you don't need a cloak of covetousness, the idea of, Self-gratification, taking the easier route, the route that still makes me look good, but I don't have to go through the process. That's what this is. And then I don't have time to develop this last point, but, oh, by the way, he said God is witness. I think that's such a powerful point. Would you be able to make, like, as Paul did, a defense of who you are and be able to say God is witness? In a good conscience, you could say that. Wow. But then the last thing is sacrifice, which I've kind of touched on. I'll just mention it, and then we need to conclude. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. This is a nursing mother. 
You know, we've had nine children. There's something about the commitment of a mom to that child. By the way, my wife, in order to take care of the child like she should, guess what she has to do? She has to be nourished. You need to be growing and nourished spiritually so that you can give to the disciple that you're working with. You can't give something you don't have. Does that make sense? That's what it's saying. As a nursing mother, this is what it is, cherisheth her children. So that's how we were among you. But notice he said gentle. There was nothing selfish or crafty or overbearing about him. He was just, he loved these people. He was committed just like a nursing mother is to her child. Now look, also there's, there's another thing. He says being affectionately desirous of you. This is the passion of loving parents. The only time I believe this word is used, in the, it's the only time this verb is used here in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, excuse me. And in order to get a better sense of the, world, the word, excuse me, somebody needs to look at the Greek papyri. And um, this, where I got this from, it says, a good example of this rare verb, long for, is supplied by the true reading of an inscription on a sepulcher in the 4th century AD, where the sorrowing parents are described as greatly desiring their son. Imagine losing a son, that, that, just, oh, that affection. That, well, that's what he's saying. That's how passionate they were about their disciples. He says, we were willing to impart our, not just the gospel, not just the truth, but our own lives to you. Look, if you're selfish about your existence now in your college days, and it's about what you can do and about me, you're not going to live like that. You're going to actually be a pretty selfish discipler, and it's not going to go very far. And you're not going to see God do what you believe you can do through your life because you've not broken through on your selfishness. And that's what he's saying. This is the opposite of self. In fact, notice verse 9. You're late. Uh, he said, remember our labor and travail. He worked early, early in the morning into the day. And then he, would, he, he, he wasn't even, he actually worked, so he wasn't uh, a cumber, uh, an encumbrance to them financially. He believed that that was what he was supposed to do at that point. He didn't want to be chargeable to any of them. So he preached unto them. He spent much time in their lives. He worked super hard, even probably the wee hours of the morning at night, or I don't know if it was late in the night. Either way, he worked in a way that he could also spend time with them. He, he literally spent himself. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to see people through? Whatever it takes sacrificial work hours, sacrificial things you have to do. But you, you, that, that doesn't just switch on. Look, you'll have more pressures if God allows you to get married and allows you to have children. There's more responsibilities. Right now you're developing your character in this way. So let me just say this to you. You never can be expected to be all in like this desire to passionately impart himself unless you are responding right toward those who are training you and investing in you. If you don't like what people are doing with you, how are you going to actually then turn around and be effective in turning around and seeing others go on? Does that make sense? It all goes together. Look, you're right now, and I'm not minimizing college, but you're right now in the training ground, getting ready for God to use you. Now, right now, the things you're doing is big league in one sense because it's the Great Commission. It's always important. But when you get out there and you're on your own, guess what? You need to um, be able to say, hey, I've gone through the course of the training that God's put in my life, and life's always a training ground, but I'm all in with what God wants. And then you see his selflessness. Look, we holy, we justly, unblamably behaved among you. We exhorted and comforted and charged every you. One of you as a father doth his children for the goal of what? That you would walk worthy. Are you so consumed with God that every person that your life touches that you want them to walk worthy? That includes fellow college students. You should never be somebody who pulls a college student down because of something you don't like here. You should be the kind of person that says, hey, the goal for so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. I might not be their discipler, but the goal that I should have for their life is that they would walk worthy. So I'm not going to do anything to hurt them. I'm going to push them forward by the grace of God. 
through his working in me. Your whole life needs to be consumed now. Everything you're doing right now, the thought process you have, the mode of how you operate is all affecting your future. Those who go through the process end up being used. And I trust right now that you will be committed to the dream that God's put in your heart. I hope you have a dream. I hope you believe God's going to use your life. But remember that right now is where it starts. Letting God do whatever he wants to do.